Shabbat Shalom. What a pleasure to welcome back the elite soldiers of the Israel National Defense College under the command of Major General Itai Veruv. Welcome to us. It's a high honor and a great joy to see you all again. I'm also delighted to welcome my friend Israel Nitzan, the Acting Consul General of New York, who is accompanying the INDC delegation. Our guests were handpicked by the Chief of Staff of the IDF to participate in an intense year-long study program. Away from their field commands, they have the time and the space to think and learn about anything and everything that might impact on their future leadership, including understanding America and our Jewish community better, which is what brings them to us on this Shabbat. Ruchim Abayim, welcome. You are among family here. How good it is and how wonderful for brothers and sisters to dwell together. We look forward to Shabbat dinner after services where everyone downstairs will be fully vaccinated. We can take off our masks if we're comfortable to do that and engage just like we did two years ago when you were here. It'll be the first time in 16 months that our congregation will be gathering for an oneg around food. We have not served a crumb of bread here since March 2020. We haven't even offered water. Even fully vaccinated Americans are Hesitant to return to communal spaces, our congregation has not really felt comfortable yet in coming back. We're still recovering from deep emotional trauma. So your presence, members of the uh, Defense College, your presence here brings a sense of relief and hope that we can finally begin to see the end of this awful pandemic. At every opportunity, I have clarified that our synagogue is not neutral on Judaism, the Jewish people, or the state of Israel. That is not our job. We are passionate partisans. We will always stand by Israel's side, no matter what. We will never abandon Israel or give aid and comfort to Israel's enemies. No matter the grievance, we will never justify whitewash or excuse terror. And we will always support Israel's right and moral obligation to defend itself against any attack. No country in the world would or should behave differently. <laughs> After America was attacked in 2001 by terrorists, the United States invaded two countries halfway around the world and changed the entire history of the 21st century. We are not uncritical. An uncritical Jew is a contradiction in terms. There never was and there never will be such a strange creature. The members of our congregation differ on the day-to-day -day policies of the Israeli government. But then again, they also differ on the day-to-day -day policies of the American government. 
And truth be told, they differ on the synagogue's daily decisions as well. I frequently receive criticism after my public statements or sermons, and if not, honestly, I feel disappointed, as if I must have failed in expressing myself fully and accurately. This is who we are. We are a highly contentious people. We have always been this way. We like ourselves this way. So while we are not uncritical, we are unconditionally bound one to the other. You are bound to us as well. Israeli leaders do not emphasize enough your obligations to world Jewry. Our relationship is not a one-way street. Kol Yisrael Aravin ze baze. All Jews are responsible one for the other. The fate of one Jew is the fate of all Jews. Whether we live in Brussels, Budapest, Berlin, Buenos Aires, Barcelona, Bordeaux, or Beersheba. We have many problems, crises, and challenges facing us. In your travels, I am sure that you have already encountered worried American Jews, worried about the future of Israel, worried about the American-Israel bilateral relationship, worried about the weakening support and growing animosity in some parts of the liberal world, including liberal Jews, worried about the explosive rise in anti-Semitic incidences in this country. If you are willing, we will gladly discuss these issues with you over dinner. These are clear and present dangers. But now on Shabbat, a day devoted to counting our blessings, I want to remind us of our many blessings. There is a concept in Judaism called hakarata tov, recognizing the good. Even for such a relentlessly self-critical people, it is proper from time, to from time to time to note how far we've come and to acknowledge the good. A hundred generations have passed since the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem, and almost all of them considered the restoration of Jewish sovereignty to be a distant dream. It was so inconceivable that even 1,827 years later, when Theodor Herzl announced the birth of the Zionist movement, most Jews considered that announcement ipso facto proof that Herzl was a madman. Look at us now. The state of the Jews is incomparably better than at any other era in the past 2,000 years. The Jewish state is stronger now than at any other time in its history. It is a miracle that there are even Jews in the world at all. We endured centuries of persecution, oppression, hatred, mass murder, and wholesale annihilation of entire communities. We should have disappeared long ago. In this week's Torah portion, Chukat, we read of the 
last year of the four-decade journey of the Israelites to the Promised Land, many nations that lived by our side are mentioned in the Parsha. The Canaanites, Edom, Moab, Emory, Ammon, none of these nations survived. There are no Moabites in Montana. There are no Amorites in Alabama, no Ammonites in Arkansas. There are no Babylonians in Brooklyn, Philistines in Phoenix, Midianites in Mississippi. I don't know about you. I've never met an Amalekite, a Hittite, an Akkadian, a Sumerian, a Chaldean, a Hyksos, an Abatean. None of the nations of antiquity mentioned in the Bible, often cited by the Bible as seeking our destruction, survived. The passing centuries even consumed the ancient world's superpowers. They're crumbling ruins today, displaying scant reminders that they once dominated their times. We have a Jewish state today. Israel embodies the Jewish people's indomitable will to survive. It is a triumph of the human spirit. Tortured on the crosses of the Inquisition, bleeding on the steps of the pale, incinerated in the furnaces of Europe, despised and discriminated against in the lands of the Crescent, a nation left for dead a thousand times, revived. Zionism inspired a whole people to awaken from its national passivity and to seize its own destiny. Israel represents hope, testifying to the resilience and the grandeur of the human creature. Israel is the engine of the recreation and the restoration of the national home and the national vigor of the Jewish people, a nation uprooted and scattered to the wind Rehabilitated. A hundred generations passed since the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, but we never abandoned the dream. Venatati ruchi vachem vichitem. Vehinachti etchem al admatchem. I will put my breath in you, and you shall live again and I will place you upon your own soil. I do not mind, and in fact, I am grateful to critics in the Jewish and general world who rightly remind us, especially Israeli soldiers who wield such destructive force, that the use of force must be measured, reasonable, in self-defense and the last resort. Our tradition teaches us that God led the Israelites out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
a mighty hand that wielded power against the slave master, but also an outstretched arm that offered peace, respect, tolerance, mutual understanding, love, dignity, and compromise, an outstretched arm that seeks to embrace. Peace is Judaism's highest aspiration. All that is written in the Torah is written for the sake of peace, the Talmud states. Practically every major prayer in our daily liturgy contains an appeal for peace. Skim through the prayer book and you'll see it for yourself. We are commanded not only to want peace, but to seek peace and pursue it. Ezehu Gibor, who is a hero, the sages ask. One who turns an enemy into a friend. But Judaism never obligated us to sacrifice ourselves to those who seek our demise. The incessant insistence on proportionality invoked by Israel's opponents often hides a more insidious goal of delegitimizing any Israeli use of force. I have little patience for the preachy prophets of proportionality. For them, every Israeli response is disproportionate because Israel's entire existence is unjust. They seek to defend attacks on Israel while condemning any Israel response. How's this for proportionality? Don't fire at Israel and Israel won't fire at you. One of the central lessons of Jewish existence, one of the central lessons of Jewish existence that is hard for diaspora Jews to truly grasp, is that powerlessness for Jews leads to catastrophe. A people can never put itself at the mercy of the marauding beast. It can never depend on outside protectors. They won't come to protect you. They will not come to save you. Powerlessness leads to more abuse, not less. It leads to the strong savaging the weak, especially in the Middle East. Open any newspaper on any given day, and you will read it for yourselves. Zionism is about empowerment. To rewrite the Jewish story in the annals of history, not as a victim, but as a proactive agent of progress and repair. What we have discovered is what other nations have discovered. Wielding power is fraught with potential for abuse. But Jewish history proves to us emphatically that it is far better to have power and to struggle with the moral dilemmas of wielding it than to be 
powerless and at the mercy of the dark lords. When I view the often unfair, duplicitous, even hate-filled condemnations of Israel, I often think to myself, the very notion of a self-governing Jewish state with a Jewish prime minister and a Jewish cabinet, let alone Jewish fighter pilots, Jewish tank commanders, Jewish infantry, simply discombobulates many Europeans and others across the Western world and the Middle East. Self-empowered Jews are so out of character with their long history of interacting with us. All they have ever known, and that has been transmitted generation after generation for thousands of years, are the passive and accepting, wandering, never fully embraced Jewish victims of their own anti-Semitism. For them, a Jewish army is an unbridgeable contradiction. It messes with their emotional instincts and intellectual or religious principle passed down to them from one generation to the next. We tend to view the traumas of the 20th century as ancient history. It's not so. Still living among us, our ancestors who survived the great inferno, the ultimate catastrophe of Jewish powerlessness. I'll always remember my first visit to Dachau. Not as many people died there as in other concentration camps. Still, it became a symbol of Nazi atrocities because of its location outside of Munich, in the heart of a German suburb. I was struck by the utter normalcy of the place. Dachau is a town. It has everything every other town has. It was a town back then, during the war as well. To get to the camp, you walk about a quarter of a mile from the parking lot. You cross the street and some houses. When I was there, I came early in the morning. Everything was quiet, normal. I saw a typical German family walking down the neighborhood lane. They were young parents. The mother was holding in her arms her bouncing, bubbly baby. And a shaggy dog was prancing by their side. Nothing was out of the ordinary. From inside the concentration camp, you could see houses abutting the main building that was used to process prisoners. In that building, if you go inside, you can still see the hooks that they hung tortured prisoners on. In that building, you can imagine tortured prisoners being lashed for hours with whips and canes. And typical red roof houses literally overlook the torture room. 
Those houses were studded with antennas and satellite dishes, all the trappings of modern life. It is what you would expect to find in any middle-class neighborhood in the Western world. I'm not suggesting that the younger generations are personally responsible for the sins of their parents. I don't believe that. I simply noticed that people are prepared to live on top of the place where 200,000 souls were imprisoned and where 30,000 were killed. Their first view in the morning as they get up and drink their coffee is overlooking the outer perimeter into the concentration camp square where tens of thousands of starving, bedraggled, beaten, and tortured prisoners lined up every morning for roll call and selection. And I remember thinking to myself, in the end, Life moves on. Your tragedies are your tragedies. But others get on with life. Thousands of visitors a day, including group after group of German youth, visit and are shaken by those 20 acres in Dachau. But the people who live right outside overlooking that spot, they live normal lives. They have families. They raise children. They have pets. They have satellite television. Our tragedy is not their tragedy. They live as if nothing happened there. If another catastrophe were to befall the Jewish people or the Jewish state, there would be blazing headlines. Learned books would be published. Millions of our enemies would rejoice. Millions of others would express real and sincere sadness. Some would weep. A few might repent. But in the end, they would move on. We would be left with a tragedy. To this day, 2,000 years later, Jews mourn the destruction of the Jewish state and the Second Temple. For everyone else, it is a small piece of history if they are even aware of it. For us, after two millennia, it is still an open wound. It will never fully heal. The commanders who are with us tonight are among the select group of us who, swift as eagles and strong as lions, ensure and protect the Jewish future. Honored guests, we say to you what Moses said to Joshua. Chazak ve'emans. Vadonai, hu haolech lefanecha. Be strong and of good courage.
Fear not, and do not falter, and may the eternal God be with you.